Hi, welcome to Swine Doc Pod with Carthage. My name is Dr. Clayton Johnson. I'm a partner and veterinarian at Carthage Veterinary Services in Carthage, Illinois. Uh, and it's my pleasure to bring you this podcast. Uh, I want to give a special thanks to the team at swineweb.com who introduced us to uh, the podcast concept, uh, helped us to set up and create content. Uh, Jim and his team do a wonderful job. And if you haven't checked out their website, I would encourage you to go to swineweb.com and, and he posts a tremendous amount of information there from across the industry. One of the things that I personally enjoy about uh, the Jim's posts on swineweb.com is he, he keeps us updated on, on all the deserving recognitions that go on in the industry. And specifically, I want to give a shout out to a couple of people who recently received some awards that I think are well-deserved. Uh, first and foremost, our own Dr. Dania Clausen was recently named the American Association of Swine Veterinarians Swine Veterinarian of the Year. We recently had our association's annual meeting, and they honored Dania with, with what truly is the, the most probably prestigious award a swine vet can receive. Uh, for those of you who haven't met Dr. Dania, she has dedicated her career to helping the farms in the Carthage system. And from all of us at Carthage, we can't uh, say thank you to Dania uh, to, for that enough and, and very well deserved on the recognition. Uh, the second shout out I want to give is to the 2022 Pork Industry Distinguished Service Award winner, Dr. Scott D. Uh, I have known Dr. D from his days at the University of Minnesota uh, and certainly through his uh, career at Pipestone now. He is a tireless servant of the industry. Uh, I once, uh, many times I've been on a speaking circuit with Dr. D and once we met in China and I could see he was an exhausted man. He had been uh, planes, trains and automobiles all over the world when we could still do that. And he was still there uh, volunteering to share his message about biosecurity risks. And he was doing it at the time of really peak ASF concerns around the world. Um, and I really want to give uh, Scott and all of his team at Pipestone uh, a shout out and a thank you for all that they do, um, not only on the biosecurity front, but for everything that they do for our industry. So to Scott and Dania, congratulations on a job well done. And if you want to read more about that, go to swineweb.com and check that out. We are going to do a special edition of Swine Doc Pod with Carthage. Uh, got a request off of Twitter, actually, that we do an emergency podcast on E. coli. Um, e. coli, for those of you who don't know, is a disease that has been around for a long, long time uh, and a disease that I think today you would have to classify as an emerging disease threat. Um, there have been several podcasts published in the last week or two on this topic of E. coli. Uh, the Swine It team just published a podcast. The University of Minnesota just released an episode on this. Uh, and a couple of months back, there was an episode of Swine Trends by APC podcast, which Dr. Elise Tuhill presented on and shared her thoughts on uh, E. coli management. And while we couldn't get Dr. Elise Tuhill, I know Dr. Elise Schleter, and I asked Dr. Elise Schleter to come on the podcast today because she is an E. coli expert. So Dr. Elise, welcome very much to the Carthage Podcast Studios. Thank you for having me. Now, I joke a little bit. Um, I have to give uh, Steve crap because Steve has been a participant on the podcast several times. Um, and uh, as I understand it, you and Steve are somehow related. Is that correct? Somehow. Somehow related. Um, well, welcome. Uh, appreciate having you on. Um, let's dive right into it, Elise. Um, we've got listeners out there that are very interested in E. coli. They are sick of hearing me talk and they would like to hear from an excellent swine veterinarian. 
what is the deal with E. coli, Elise? What are the clinical signs and, and diagnostic steps that are kind of step one to know if you have this emerging problem at your farm? So there's uh, really two different types of E. coli that affect finishing pigs downstream. Um, the first type of, of E. coli um, we typically associate with the K88 um, genes, and um, that tends to present um, with clinical signs more classic um, of diarrhea and fallout, um, and that usually starts um, pretty young in the pig. So within the first few days of placement, um, it can even occur um, late lactation before the pig even leaves the sow farm. So we usually see those clinical signs um, pretty quickly. Um, pigs will become very dehydrated um, and have really sunken in eyelids as well. Um, the other type of E. coli that seems to be um, is the, the one that's causing all the pain right now um, and seems to be more common across the industry, and that's what we're talking about a lot more, is F18 um, type of E. coli. Uh, and that um, can really present two ways, depending on what um, toxins are all present in the bacteria. Um, but the first is either, you know, the, the, what I just described, the diarrhea um, and fallout, or the second can be what we call um, edema disease, where you will have a sudden, inc sudden increase in good pigs found dead, um, and you may or may not have diarrhea associated with that. So um, the good pigs found dead um, will have um, clinical or gross lesions that are um, intestines filled with blood and they're bright red and dark. Um, and those um, usually, the edema disease usually occurs closer to three to four weeks on feed, um, depending on what the wean age is. Um, but really the diarrhea and fallout can occur anytime from weaning up to four or five weeks post wean, depending on um, the situation and environmental triggers and um, which type of bacteria are present. Those uh, gross lesions that you see on necropsy, Elise, are those pretty pathognomonic for this disease or do you need diagnostics to further confirm it? Is that, you know, the, the, the bloody intestines you talked about in that age of pig, is that only caused by this E. coli or are there other differentials we'd want to rule out with laboratory tests? I would say the gross lesions are pretty classic. Um, get some pictures, um, send the pictures to your vet and the vets can pretty quickly say, yep, that's for sure that, or a pretty good idea of whether or not that is what it is. Um, whether, depending on the type of intervention that you wanna put in place, if, if you're thinking about doing any sort of um, vaccination strategy, then it's worth it to know if you only have K88 or you have F18 or you have both, or, or maybe you have an odd case that is something different. So that's where we would need diagnostics. Um, and those scenarios, either just fresh tissue um, or swabs um, of the intestines or, or feces are all good samples to get to the lab. Um, they'll grow it first so you can see if it um, has the characteristics that um, classify it as hemolytic E. coli. Um, and then if you, if you and your veterinarian choose, you can do further testing from there. The F-18 and the K-88, what, what does that mean? I mean, it sounds like the name of some county road in the middle of uh, Missouri somewhere. What's, a, what's an F-18 and what's a K-88? How do I know if I have them? 
um, they're just the genes that um, the bacteria express. So that's um, the testing at the diagnostic lab are the only way you really know what you have. And are those the same genes that cause the E. coli to, cause, to, to give me issues? Do those genes uh, cause the disease itself? They are the most common. Um, there are other ones that um, can cause disease, um, but there are, um, there are E. coli that don't necessarily cause disease, and those um, would not um, classically be or normally be a K88 or a F18. Yeah. And it, every, everything's infected with E. coli, right? So um, it's kind of the classic difference between infection and disease and that all the pigs are going to be infected. <laughs> if they've got maybe not an F18 or not a, a K88, maybe that's one of the good E. coli's that's normal in the gut. But if they've got the K88 or F18, that's at least enough to start to get nervous. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, that and if the um, culture, the when they grow the bacteria in the lab, if if that shows signs of um, that classified as a hemolytic E. coli, um, then those are the ones we get worried about. Okay. Talk to us, Elise, about prevention. Um, I know that there's a lot of discussion about vaccination, and maybe it's not really a vaccination, but we kind of use that term. Can you talk us through that a little bit? Yeah, so prevention, um, there's a lot of different um, ways you can attack it. So it really depends on if you think that this is a flow-based problem that's coming from a sow farm or and or if it's a site-based pro problem where the pigs are getting infected when they get to either the nursery or the finisher site. Um, we can, we see problems with it both ways. Um, so if it's a site-specific problem, that, that gets a lot easier because then you can apply um, specific management strategies um, and sanitation strategies um, to prevent it from coming in the next turn. So um, then I like to think about things like, can we get the whole barn or the whole, at least the whole room totally empty, totally washed, totally disinfected um, and, and completely clean before the new pigs come. Um, and then if it's, if it's at the sow farm level or the flow base level, then it gets a lot more complicated. Um, then we start to um, look at the timing of when it's occurring. And depending on what the timing is, um, we can adjust um, our interventions at the sow farm. So um, the, the, most, the first thing I, I tend to reach for, the fastest um, response, is um, implementing a, a vaccine, um, getting an E. coli vaccine in the piglets um, and administer it before they wean uh, in order to build up their immunity before um, the stress event of weaning and transport and, and before the bacteria starts to colonize. So how do we, uh, how do we actually get that vaccine into the pigs? Um, I give some E. coli vaccine pre-ferro. Is that good enough? Or do I have to actually pick up all the pigs and inject them with this vaccine? How's all that work? Yeah, unfortunately, a lot of the, the pre-ferro vaccines aren't as that we give to the sows um, are not, they're good at giving us immunity to some of the strains of E. coli, but they're not as good 
at um, being able to give the sow um, immunity to the hemolytic type of E. coli. So unfortunately, um, we need to focus on that, that we have to have that as our building blocks of, of immunity. Um, but um, in addition to that, if, if you're continuing to have hemolytic or problems with hemolytic E. coli, um, I typically try to get that in the pig. Um, we have given E. coli vaccine um, at various times and um, in various ways uh, to the individual piglet. Um, and what we're doing today, um, some of the, again, some of the timing depends on when it's happening downstream. Um, but if you're having any problems close to weaning, um, the best success I've seen is giving um, two different administrations of E. coli vaccine. So getting the first vaccine in them um, about seven days before you wean them, and then the second vaccine in the piglet about three days before you wean them. The reason we have seen, we think we see better success with that is because um, there's um, the pig's intestines, the receptors in their intestines change over time. And um, what happens in one pig, um, or when one pig develops receptors, it might is definitely different from when the next pig um, develops receptors. So there's some variation there. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to have the pig be old enough that they have the receptors um, for the 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 for the KD or the F18. Um, so that they can see the vaccine and immunologically respond to the vaccine. But we also have to get it in them early enough that they can build a response before they get challenged. So by doing it um, twice, um, we think we're getting a boosting response in uh, at least some of the pigs. And then in the other pigs that maybe weren't quite old enough at seven days pre-wean to really truly develop a good immune response, then they're getting at least a single dose um, three days before they wean, um, where they probably are old enough to develop a response. And as I understand it, those receptors um, will be filled up with the bad E. coli's if we don't fill them up with some good E. coli's. And that's maybe part of some of this mechanism that we're trying to essentially fill up the, the ecological space, right? Fill up the intestinal niche that the bad E. coli's want to take over. They want to dock in the intestine. They want to sit there and pump out toxins because that's what bad bacteria do. And if it's F18, maybe it causes the edema disease because those toxins go to the brain and cause swelling. If it's K88, maybe those are a little more localized in the intestine and they break down the, the tight junctions in the intestine and cause that diarrhea. But either way, we want to fill up those spots with a K88 or an F18 that doesn't produce those toxin genes so that we've got the, the spots in the parking lot all full. So when those bad E. coli's enter the intestine, there's no place for them to set up shop and release their toxins. Is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. Yep. And there's also people, um, depending on what your feed medication strategies are and, and the timing of your challenge downstream, um, you can also vaccinate the pigs in the nursery um, after they leave the sow farm as well. So um, depending on, on your antibiotic strategies, that would be another way to get vaccine in them um, if your challenge is, is later. Mm -hmm. 
And if you're going to do it in the farrowing crate, how do you get it into the actual pigs? You got to pick up every single pig, both of those times, because that's got to be a lot of work. Yeah, it definitely is a lot of work. Um, we, I've worked with farms that have done it um, two different ways. The, the first would be, as you described, um, picking them each pig up and giving them an oral, um, giving the vaccine orally in their mouth as, as a gavage. Um, the other way that you can do it is, um, is mix up the vaccine in a pump up sprayer and then spray the underline of the sow so that when the piglet goes to nurse, they get exposed to the vaccine and consume some of that vaccine as they are nursing. I have uh, seen better success from the farms that actually administer uh, the vaccine via the underline, via the spray on the underline. Uh, I know that seems counterintuitive, counterintuitive because you would think if you pick every pick up, you know they're getting a good dose. Um, but I think part of the reason we see a better advantage to the underline is because um, there's very few farms that are gonna be willing to pick up the pig twice to give the oral vaccine twice. So the we've come to a compromise to say, okay, let's give the, utter, the, the oral vaccine via the utter spray on the underline, but let's give it twice, um, knowing that we might, we're probably not gonna get a full dose in every pig every time, but let's get at least a partial dose in them twice. And a lot more farms are, a lot of farms are very um, willing to, to do that. And it doesn't take um, a significant amount of effort or time to administer it that way. Is at least reasonable to probably start there since it's a lot lower effort to get up and running. And if you're not happy with the results of that program, you could always look at an individual pig dosing program later on, but that's obviously harder to implement. Yep, absolutely. All right, let's talk a little bit about the diets for these pigs post-weaning. Um, huge transition for their intestine, obviously. They're going from um, an entirely liquid diet at the sow farm to now an entirely uh, you know, dry or meal-based diet post-weaning. Big time changes for their intestine. Historically, the industry has used zinc, which has antibiotic properties as part of the E. coli control program. Could you take us through, uh, Elise, your current recommendations and what you see working the best in the field for zinc management strategies? So um, zinc has probably been the biggest factor that we, we've done a lot of things to adjust the rations as a whole for E. coli and gut health. Uh, and um, but I do think that zinc as a whole, um, zinc oxide, implementing that at higher levels is, has been the most effective at seeing the quickest response, the fastest um, in, um, in correcting our E. coli, um, apart from making sure you get um, the feed budget executed properly. Um, I think before you make any changes to your ration, we have to make sure the feed budgets are getting fed how the nutritionist has formulated that budget and that ration to be fed. Because no matter, no matter what you do to change ration, if we're not feeding it correctly in the field, um, that will obviously cause problems. Um, from a zinc oxide perspective, the levels that we are getting to, um, to call pharmacologic are somewhere around 2,600 part per million. Uh, so typically um, the farms um, that are having problems, again, depending on the timing, um, will do somewhere between 2,600 and 3,000 parts per million of zinc oxide. Uh, 
ahead of and during the time that you think the pigs are going to be challenged. Um, we have to be a little bit careful about how long we feed the zinc oxide um, because there can be con some concerns over um, lameness because of um, zinc affects calcium absorption. Um, but um, at least it, how most nursery rations are designed, um, we can get the higher levels in um, the first two rations uh, of the nursery and that typically doesn't cause problems. Uh, the, the herds that are um, having problems at three weeks post wean or later, um, then we'll typically step down that third or fourth ration um, at, so it's a little bit lower level, but um, still some zinc oxide there to not have as, as an abrupt of a change. How about uh, medication, Elise, for uh, control specifically, prevention and control? So not to treatment yet, but medication for prevention and control. Do you recommend um, that producers use an antibiotic if they are concerned that an E. coli uh, challenge is imminent? Do you, are you concerned about causing some gut dysbiosis if we, if we use too much antibiotics or just kind of willy-nilly pick one? What are your thoughts on that? Um, one thing that I, I think is important for prevention, um, which isn't necessarily uh, antibiotic, is acidification of the feed and or water. Um, we'll put acidifiers in both the feed and the water. Um, and I do think that that has made a big impact, um, particularly particularly the acidifiers in the water, um, in um, being able to put that in ahead of the challenge um, and, and during the time where you've typically seen that problem. Um, so we'll, we'll have acidifiers running in between diet transitions or um, really during those first three to four weeks of, of eight, uh, three to four weeks post wean um, where we're having the challenges. Um, as far as uh, medication uh, or antibiotics in the in the water. Um, I like to wait until the pigs are showing clinical signs of disease. Uh, we I, I don't want to wait too long, um, but I do like to wait until there's some sign of disease because um, we have not been that great at predicting for sure which groups are going to have a challenge and which groups. Um, are, are gonna be affected the most. So um, I, I like to try to set the pigs up for success by having a good clean barn, um, getting um, the water lines clean before we start, um, having the barn warm and dry. Um, a lot of times we'll have, we'll run these barns a little bit warmer than what we would in a, a standard flow. Um, but um, I don't think you necessarily have to run them warmer as long as it's running properly. So I really watch the swings in temperatures um, and the airflow that we have um, because they, these pigs seem to be really sensitive to um, both humidity and um, the, the drafts, the swings in temperature. So really focus on all those things, get the right feed in them, get um, the water acidified, and then watch the pigs. Um, and as they have um, clinical signs of concern, um, then reach for your antibiotics. And we typically um, have better success with those antibiotics at that time um, than if we were already running it for two weeks and then have a challenge. We only have so many bullets in the gun, right? Only so many tools in the toolbox. And if we pull the trigger on the gun over and over and over again before the E. coli challenge is really there, 
the reality is we will create resistance to the bullets in the gun, right? We will select for only the E. coli's that didn't get shot with our, with our first round of bullets. And so I couldn't agree more with what you said about being a little bit conservative with water medication on the front end. Um, you know, leave yourself some treatment options. If you hammer them with an aminoglycosides, you know, GenGuard, Linko, whatever your flavor of choice is, you're going to select for the E. coli's that can survive that challenge. And then when they get sick, that's the, you know, that, that's what you're going to shoot at them again. And you've already selected for a population that is proven to you that they're resistant to that specific treatment. Great points on the water acidification, Elise. What's a pH to target? If I'm going to test and say, do I have it acidified enough, either for that early nursery period or just between those feed transitions, like you said, what pH do I need to get to? Yeah, that's a great question. And I would say there's a lot of variation in the industry, depending on who you ask this question. Um, in the field, I've had the most success um, by actually getting pH test strips in the barn so that you can test at the water nipple um, to see what's actually being delivered to the pig. And then if you're testing at that level, um, I generally give the, the guys a range of six to seven as the target um, to try to get it between six and seven. Um, there's some people that say um, closer to five to six is preferred, um, but I have heard concerns that below five and a half, um, you might start to have um, problems with water and feed intake um, if you are getting um, the water too acidic. So I usually um, target that six to seven and the herds that we've done that on consistently um, seem to have pretty good success with that. Um, it's important to remember that you can't, um, not all antibiotics work in a, an acidic environment. So make sure you're working with your veterinarian if you're trying to um, run meds specifically for strep, for example, um, they may not um, be able to mix with your acidifier very well. So um, that's important to keep in mind. Thank you for that. You started to go down a, a discussion on stressors. And, you know, we mentioned at the beginning, E. coli is an endemic disease. Every pig is infected with E. coli, okay? And typically with endemic diseases, one of the big differences between a pig that's sick with E. coli and one that's just infected is that stress. You talked about ventilation, at least. Do you have any practical tips for producers that have got to bring in these tiny nursery pigs that need one CFM each in the middle of the winter for how to practically execute that minimum ventilation program? Uh, I think the it's hard to give just standard um, recommendations because each barn is set up differently. So depending on the number of inlets you have in the room, you might target a different um, air speed or feet per minute um, than another barn. And if you have a higher stocking rate, then you might want more than another barn. Um, I think if you um, measure your humidity and use that as a gauge to um, see whether or not um, the barn is getting too humid um, or vice versa, that's a good gauge of your airflow, um, a pretty good gauge of your airflow. And then, like I said, um, I like to watch temperatures pretty closely, especially um, in that first one to two weeks. Um, I really don't like to see anything below six degrees below set point, um, depending on what the set point is. If you're running a set point um, lower than say 80 degrees post wean or, um, or 80 degrees in a 
post in a wean to finish barn, um, then you might want a little tighter swing than the six degree um, high to low. Um, the other important thing is is what what your your micro environment is. So depending on whether you have heat lamps or brooders or or tube heat, that affects what your set point is is going to be. Um, but that set point is or that micro environment getting the temperature where the pigs are laying um, closer to 90, 95 degrees on the mat um, is is also a good target and a good place to start. You bring up a great point and one that I see a lot of confusion on in the industry. What is the right set point for a wean pig? And the first question is, you know, what, what type of barn do you have? So let's start with a hot nursery situation, Elise. The classic nursery, no supplemental heat. We don't have the brooders or the heat lamps like you mentioned. We're going to heat the room to heat the pigs. Uh, solid walls, you know, you know the, the situation I'm talking about. What would you recommend, shooting from the hip, I know, but what would you recommend as a set point to start those pigs to try and minimize the E. coli impact? Uh, I usually start those barns around 78 or 80. Um, they would definitely be the, on the lower end of all of the barns um, and then watch what how hot the barn is getting and, and where it's running during the day. But a lot of those barns can get away with um, 78 or even, even 76, depending on how warm they actually stay consistently and, and what type of fans you have. Now, how about a great big wean to finish barn, a barn that's got 10 times the amount of space the pigs need when they're weaned. And I've got brooders. I've got supplemental heat. I've got brooders that are going to provide additional heat there. What do you, how, how much do you change those uh, starting set points, if any? Uh, I like those to be somewhere around 80 to 83. Um, I don't like to go below 80, um, but, um, but yeah, somewhere right around 80 to 83 at the most. Okay. Um, what other stress events do you see that commonly can, can spur this E. coli or feed into the transition of I'm just an infected pig today and now I'm a sick pig tomorrow because this stress event happened? Uh, we have to take in, into account transport um, to the wean to finish facility. So if there's something that happens in transport where the pigs get um, chilled or they stay on the truck for 12 hours longer than they're supposed to or have a super long ride, um, all of those things can um, set up a poor environment for the pig um, to get started. Um, we don't typically, I don't typically see injectable vaccines as a stressor for E. coli, like I might see it as a stressor for other maybe respiratory type diseases. Um, out of feed events are probably important. We talked about feed, but, but out of feed events in general, um, I definitely don't want um, pigs in the nursery really to be ever out of feed. Um, I think you bring up a good point on the out of feed events. Important. The out of feed events um, mean that the pig stopped eating. So anything that causes the pig to stop eating is an out of feed event. Even if there's feed in the feeder, right? If the pig is too sick to eat, uh, if the pig got vaccinated, something like that that's knocked the pig off of feed, that causes an out of feed event, which is always going to cause some level of, of upset guts. 
Um, and I, I, I really think that's an important one to highlight for the audience is that, you know, keeping feed in the feeders is important. Absolutely. Making sure the pigs eat the feed in the feeders is just as important. And if they're not eating the feed in the feeders for whatever reason, we've got to dig into that. And you mentioned following the budget. Typically budgets have both days of consumption and pounds of consumption. So is, is there something that, uh, that producers can do there to kind of track that and say, all right, if I'm supposed to get through this first uh, nursery ration in five days and it's taken me eight days, is that something where I should call up my nutritionist, call up my veterinarian, my, my support staff and say, hey, what's going on here and how can I make this better? Yeah, definitely. Um, definitely. Like you said, days and age or days and weight are what the nutritionists think of usually um, when they set those up. And if there's um, variation, um, maybe there's variation in wean size that or wean age that they didn't anticipate or variation in your fill time for the feed line that um, affects how that's being delivered. Um, all of that is really, really important. Um, and, and the fill time by feed line can become a really big deal, especially if we're not feeding to the youngest pig um, because this is a disease that can start in one pen. And as that pen starts to shed more E. coli into the environment, it can spread pre pretty quickly throughout the barn. So even if three quarters of the pigs in the room are being fed properly and the youngest ones aren't, that may be enough to trigger um, the event. While we're on the prevention topic, Elise, I'm reminded of uh, some text messages I was trading with the good Dr. Mac Wilt uh, yesterday about E. coli. And Mac reminded me that uh, him and his dad way back in the day used to use oats. Uh, are oats something that you can use from a prevention standpoint, from a treatment standpoint? Do they have any value proposition there? Yeah, certainly. Um, and that's where um, the nutritionist can definitely help. Um, most um, nursery rations have some amount of rolled oats in them. Um, you can adjust the amount that they're, um, the, the nutritionist can adjust the amount uh, in the ration to help. Um, to help. Uh, you can also get just bagged rolled oats and use that as a top dress um, in the mats or on the feeders or in your gruel, um, which can also help um, dry pigs up and um, encourage feed consumption. Um, my experience, the latter, using it as a top dress when you have disease has been um, most successful, but uh, I do um, know of several nutritionists in the industry that are working on, on maybe alternate rolled oat inclusions to try to get better success. Yeah, there's always new technology coming. Um, and I think that's a, a great segue into to looking at what other countries do, because, you know, Europe has pulled zinc out. Uh, some other countries have said no more zinc. And as you said, that's a critical part of our E. coli management strategy here in the United States. Um, I know the, the team at NutriQuest has worked hard on a product called Swine Protect to be positioned as a, uh, a zinc replacement product for producers who don't have access to it. And specifically, as we think about E. coli control, something that I think you should look at if you're having issues with E. coli and you're not happy with your current management strategy. Other than that Swine Protect uh, product from NutriQuest, Elise, is there anything else that you're aware of that's, you know, maybe kind of on the, the, the bleeding edge uh, or leading edge of innovation that producers should be at least aware of to, to consider? Yeah, there's, there's a whole list of them. Um, the 
the biggest, the first ones that come to mind are, are probiotics. Um, there's a lot of companies that have different probiotics that can be um, administered in either the feed or water, um, really trying to get more of the good bacteria in the gut so the bad bacteria can't take hold like you were describing earlier. Um, and those can be administered um, at the south arm and on the wean to finish side, depending on how you want um, to target that. Um, there's also uh, all kinds of products that can administer um, other nutrients like plasma or electrolytes um, in the water that can also help to drive um, both water consumption and, um, and feed consumption or just provide a different source of nutrients um, that also are, um, can, can have a place in E. coli control as well. All right, so I think we've beat up prevention and control options. Um, you know, the reality is that sometimes even with all these programs in place, we still have the disease breakthrough. Um, and when we have it breakthrough, sometimes it can be pretty severe, right? High, high, high percentages of pigs that are sick all at the same time, sometimes really, really high death loss that happens in a short amount of time. When the pigs are sick with E. coli, Elise, what now? What do you, what do you recommend? What do you do from a treatment standpoint? I think you have to put the antibiotics in the water. Um, that's the first step that we all reach to. Um, Iowa State has been describing um, more bacterial resistance with the recent, um, with the, the isolates they're getting over the last year, um, when they grow those in the lab and test those in the, in the lab. Um, in reality, I haven't been seeing as much um, resistance in the field to our water meds as um, what other people have in the industry. Um, but that's just something to, to keep in mind as you work through the problem. Um, if you would have asked me a couple years ago, I would not have used injectable treatments very heavily um, for E. coli challenges, but that is something that we are turning to now, where um, if the problem seems to start in an individual pen or maybe in just the, the smaller pigs, um, mass treating individual pens or um, pulling, very, uh, pulling all the affected animals very aggressively on day one or two and mass treating those animals um, with, with an antibiotic um, and really pick your antibiotic. I've used multiple different injectable products and, and they've all had varying levels of success. Um, so I, I, would, I would think more about mass treating um, some populations today than I, I would have a few years ago as well. When you say mass treat, you're specifically talking about mass injection. Same day we go through, we give an injection to every pig, maybe even while the water medication is also being consumed. Yes. Yep. I don't have any experience where we've done like the whole barn, but maybe pull the bottom 10% of the pigs and treat all of those pigs on one day. Um, Very good. So if I've got a wean to finish barn or I've got a nursery and I've, I've, I've had this disease experience and I don't want to go through it again, what do I need to think about between um, groups? What does what my between group sanitation program need to look like? Just the normal things that I would do or maybe there are there some other things? I'd say at bare minimum, we have to get rid of all the organic matter and all the poop. Uh, so... It, it, 
I think um, it's important to have somebody go through the barn and inspect the barn um, and inspect all the creeks and crevices, um, look between the gate feet, look under, underneath the feeders, um, in the water cups, um, all of those areas that sometimes get missed. Um, at bare minimum, we have to get it all the organic matter gone and then dry. Those are the two things I, I really focus on the most with E. coli. Um, I also think about um, your feeders, making sure those in your water cups can get dry um, if you can, because a lot of times as you're washing away in a market barn, um, water can hang out there afterwards and it may or may not have some of the um, poop left over from the last turn. And that's a great environment for bacteria to grow in. And then if we drop our first ration right into that feed, um, then that's um, a great way to expose the pigs right as they come in the door. So get, get the barn clean, get the barn dry. Um, at minimum, use some kind of disinfectant. Um, I don't really have a preference for E. coli on one disinfectant versus another. Um, and then we also will try to clean out the water lines. Um, there's been some work that's been done that says um, E. coli might hang out in the biofilm that's in the, e or in the water lines. So um, if you actually take the nipples off and then um, see what's in the in the water line, um, that might be a good environment for E. coli to live in as well. Um, again, I don't have a, a product that I'm partial to to clean the water lines, uh, and there are um, multiple products available, um, but even if it's as simple as running bleach through the lines, um, I think that makes a big difference um, for E. coli prevention. What's a biofilm, Elise? Oh, just a buildup of bacteria is probably the easiest way, or bacteria or fungi or mold or a buildup of slime inside the line. And when you say slime, it's a, it's a gel then? Yes, that's usually some, some level of gel. Yep. And if I use bleach just uh, in my water line, or I use, you know, citric acid or something like that, that I, I would say is, well, I'm sanitizing my water line that way. What would you say to the efficacy of that relative to that biofilm? Can, can I effectively sanitize the E. coli living in that biofilm while the biofilm still in the water line? I don't think so. Um, I think it will help to remove some of the bacteria, um, but it doesn't necessarily get everything. Um, it doesn't get the whole line totally cleaned out. Um, and that's where you need some of the other products. It's chemistry, right? Um, those gels and those oils can't be penetrated by water, right? Um, they don't they don't mix with water unless you add a detergent into it. And I don't think anybody is, uh, is, is probably going to be able to do that. And so one of the things I, I preach to folks that are in this situation is you've got to remove the nipples. The nipples are the physical barrier that allow that biofilm to live in the water stick specifically, because the water stick is vertical. And so gravity settles that heavy gel down at the base of that water stick where the nipple is attached. And as long as that nipple's there, it kind of serves as a, as a blockade, as a, as a stopper for that biofilm gel that, that, that harbors the E. coli and salmonellas and breaking spira and every other pathogen that gives us enteric problems harbors that right there in that water line unless we remove that nipple we can't get that gel out and you, you should never expect anything that dissolves in your water to actually penetrate that gel right oil and water don't mix i think we all know that 
Um, so to me, that's that's one of the, the biggest opportunities that often gets overlooked. And as my good friend, uh, Chris Rodemaker reminded me, you know, at the end of the day, desiccation and drying is a disinfectant as well. So if you can just empty those water lines out, get the nipples off, get them completely purged, right? Run your ball valves. So after you've got the nipples all off, flush the system by turning your ball valve on and off again to, to push water through the system, push those biofilms out. Maybe you're running some sort of a, you know, bleach or some other acidifier uh, through the water medicator at that point. So you're kind of charging the lines with that, that disinfectant. Um, but uh, regardless, let those things sit dry at least overnight. And if you have extended downtime, even better because that desiccation process will help to kill any of the residually coli's in those lines. What about uh, the rubber mats that we use for the comfort mats, Elise? Can I get those disinfected? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, it, it depends on the material. <laughs> um, if it's uh, not a super porous plastic, um, if it's a, a plastic that you can, um, clean pretty easily. Um, we usually don't worry about those as much, um, but the thicker rubbers, um, rubber mats that um, get torn and have ragged edges, those are those ones I worry about. Um, and we typically will ask producers to replace those uh, if they're doing an intense cleanup protocol. Um, that also reminds me that um, while I said I don't have any disinfectants of choice, um, I was really thinking in a, a modern commercial um, wean to finish barn, um, if the barn um, design has a lot of wood surfaces or wood gating um, or any, any type of porous material that can't be cleaned or disinfected well, um, then we will think about using alternate um, disinfectant methods like whitewashing um, to improve our, our ability to kill the bacteria. Yep. On uh, the disinfectants, let's say that we're just going to use some chemical disinfectant. We're going to use a hydrogen peroxide-based product or a glutaraldehyde, a quat, something like that. Um, I know you said you don't have a huge preference there for E. coli specifically, but is it important in terms of how we apply that disinfectant? Is, it, is there some contact time that we should be thinking about regardless of which disinfectants we use? Yeah, I mean, all the disinfectants have labeled rates and have labeled um, contact times. So I think that's the, the first place to start, um, making sure you're mixing it properly. Uh, and then um, that mix it, the first thing is mix it properly. And the second thing is hit all your surfaces. Um, and I like to make sure we're using some sort of a uh, application system where you can see where it's hitting, um, whether it foams or whether it, um, whether there's bubbles or something like that. So you can actually physically see that it hit that ceiling and it hit this part and not that part. Um, and then, and then the contact times the third part, um, on the finishing side, I really like to have overnight, um, downtime from when you do that. And that will increase the likelihood that your main surfaces are dry. Um, it, overnight, in most weed and finish barns, won't get all the creeks and crevices dry, but it will get um, the top of the slats and the the place that the pigs come into the most contact with, with dry, with with definitely adequate adequate contact time. 
one of the things that I always share with um, folks at the farm is, you know, you've done such a good job of cleaning, right? You power washed, you worked really hard, and you're spending all this money on disinfectants. And, you know, those contact times are critical, right? If you don't get the contact time, the disinfectant doesn't work right? You, you literally wasted your money. You wasted your time if the disinfectant doesn't work. And for the vertical surfaces, whether that's your gates or the sides of your feeders or the walls or, you know, the, the ceiling, um, if, if you don't get that foam to adhere and to get that cling of the disinfectant to those vertical surfaces, what happens? If it's just a liquid, it just runs straight down into your pit, right? And we aren't trying to disinfect the pit. And I hate it when I see somebody spend hundreds and hundreds of dollars on disinfectant in between groups of pigs, and they literally just spray it directly into the pit, right? No contact time, no efficacy. If, if that's the way we're going to apply it, just skip the disinfectant step because we're not doing any good. So I, I, I really want to highlight what you said about the, the foaming piece and making sure that you have a good disinfectant application system. Make sure that you've got a good foaming wand so that you can see where you're applying the disinfectant and you know you get that cling, right? Those, those back walls that are that are going to be a concern, the, the gating. You've got to have that disinfectant stick to there for the contact time. And that's generally a minimum of like 10 minutes. It's not 10 seconds. It's got to stay there for quite some time. And I think that's another one of those kind of easy opportunities where producers don't need to spend any more money. They are spending all the money on the disinfectant already. We just need to change how we apply it so we get all the benefit from it. Elise, anything else that you've got for practical tips for E. coli management for producers that are out there still struggling with this emergency emerging disease challenge? I think the, the main thing is don't underestimate um, the importance of communicating with all the people that may be involved, whether there, there's definitely multiple players. Um, the South Farmen, um, your, um, the weed to finish in, um, your, your caretakers, if you're not doing the correct or all the daily chores, um, the nutritionists, your production team, um, don't forget all the people that are involved and um, do what you can to communicate with them on what's working and what's not working and um, see what other solutions you can come up with. Excellent. Elise, thank you very much for the time. Thank you for, for all the effort that you put into to this uh, E. coli challenge. Um, you, you've led this effort really for our team at Carthage. You've led it for the producers you work with. You know, we started this by uh, giving some attaboys to, to Nia and, and Scott for their recent awards. And um, one of these days when there's an E. coli award, I'll be sure to nominate you first and foremost for it. In all honesty, it's it's been a, a pleasure to work with you throughout the years, both at Mash Offs at Carthage, and I really appreciate everything you do. Thanks for having me today to talk. That'll do it for us. Um, I hope you found this uh, episode um, enlightening and hopefully you found a couple of take-homes that you can use um, and, and, and improve your operation. Um, for the entire production crew here at Swine Doc Pod with Carthage, I'm Dr. Clayton Johnson. Thank you very much, Elise. And for all of you out there uh, listening, I hope you have a great rest of your day.